This week's episode of The Weeds is sponsored by Club W. Take something off your to-do list. Just go to clubw.com slash weeds to get $20 off of your first order now. That's clubw.com slash weeds. The Weeds is supported by Goldman Sachs. To learn about developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy, subscribe to the firm's podcast, Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, available on iTunes. This week's episode of The Weeds is sponsored by Texture. Try Texture right now for free when you go to texture.com slash weeds, texture.com slash weeds. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm now in an awkward seat where I'm just staring at AC. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. With me in the studio in Washington is my colleague Sarah Cliff. And remotely from the capital of Trump America is uh, Ezra Klein. Vox is... Uh, and the capital of Hillary America, no? Yeah, but she's a fake New Yorker. Trump, Trump, sure, is, Trump is the real deal. You can probably see Trump Tower from... Right. Can you see Hillary, you Hillary headquarters right, wherever I, I, you're sitting? Yeah, Hillary I, I, Tower. Can, I can see... I'm actually in Brooklyn at the moment, so oh. I can probably see Hillary headquarters. But it's true. I could, from where I'm staying, I can, I can see Trump Tower from my porch. Yeah, exactly. So he, he looms over you like a god. <laughs> Much as, as he, he does looms. over all of us. <laughs> <laughs> or at least the voters in the state of Indiana. I think that I, 24 hours ago, thought that Donald Trump was going to win Indiana. And I thought that Donald Trump was going to win the Republican nomination. And I honestly was not poised at the ready to the results or riveted by it. Like I, I felt like I knew what was going to happen. And then, right. Remember 24 hours ago when I said we shouldn't podcast about the election because eh, it's just Indiana. I right. do, yes. And so then exactly <laughs> what I thought was going to happen happened. And yet I found it very surprising. You can predict events, but it's hard to predict your feelings. I don't think it was your feelings. It, well, one thing, one thing we should say is Ted Cruz dropped out of the presidential race. And that was not a sure thing, right? There was a theory that he would fight on until the convention, you know, potentially even if Donald Trump was on track to get a major, a delegate majority, which he's now more than on track to get a delegate majority. But I, I do think what happened, what elicited the broad, particularly right of center freak out last night was Ted Cruz dropping out and a recognition that there is no other savior. There is no break glass in case of Donald Trump. There's no contested convention. There's no Ted Cruz wins Indiana and California and John Kasich does something and wave your hands a little bit and Donald Trump isn't the nominee. That this is just really happening. We're just really doing this. This is what the Republican Party is and has become. And I think that people sort of final efforts to not believe that are falling away. Even so, I mean, I feel like we knew that before Indiana. Like Matt wrote a piece, I think the headline was, Donald Trump is the nominee. This is really happening as we headed into Indiana. But I think you're right. There was nothing that suggested that Cruz was going to have this like miraculous California sweep with like Trump up like 20 or 30 points in the polls there. But just actually seeing it happen seems to have, you, you know, like even if you intellectually knew this was coming to have elicited the strong reaction. Well, and what's fascinating about the, the Indiana result is if you if you look at a county by county map of the election results, which is often interesting, you can see the borders because the other states around Indiana have already voted. So, you know, there's these sort of very straight north-south lines that divide rural Indiana from rural Illinois and rural Indiana from rural Ohio and rural Indiana from rural Michigan. Those are all states that have very different overall political complexions because Chicago is a giant city and Indianapolis is, is a small one. But the kind of sparsely populated rural heartlandy counties, they seem pretty socially and, and politically similar. But if you look on the map, Indiana jumps out. He did way better in counties that are just on the Indiana side of the border than he did on counties on the Illinois or Ohio sides of the border. And I don't think anyone believes that's because Trump has some unique special bond with the people of Indiana. What happens is that sometime in the past several weeks, Trump before the voting in Indiana, Trump really became 
the presumptive nominee. And I think as people came to understand that Cruz and Kasich were offering these kind of oddball strategies, you know, form a blocking coalition, go to the convention, have a, a contestation there, there was clearly a reaction against that from some rank-and-file Republicans, the kinds of people who in the Illinois primary were like, look, Trump is not my first choice. We're now saying in Indiana, look, guys, let's not have a, a disastrous, weird nomination poaching thing. Like, if we vote for Trump, that'll settle it. They did, and now it's really settled. There was actually Nate Silver on 538 had a great graph to this point that shows right around Wisconsin. You see Trump, he had rarely won the majority of a state. Usually he was winning the most delegates, but with 35, 40 percent of the vote. And then around Wisconsin, you see it jump to the majority. And all of a sudden, he starts winning the majority of voters. He starts winning a majority in the Northeast and all the primaries we had last week. It wasn't always expected to go this way. Like, I think there was a countervailing narrative that as you saw one or two states or, you know, five or six states vote for Trump, that you might see voters say, holy shit, this is like not worth signing up for. They could have flipped in the opposite direction. And I think it speaks to a lot of, you know, we'll probably talk about this more as we go on, you know, this idea of mobilizing some kind of never Trump movement that it never really mobilized that, huh. you know, there was <laughs> there was a moment where voters saw this is what is coming. And they said, yeah, like, I'll sign up for that instead of saying, like, holy shit, like, I can't get on board with that. Never Trump, never mobilized. Never Trump, never mobilized. He, wah, wah. I mean, Trump lost Wisconsin. Wisconsin was the moment when I think Trump's opponents really felt like they had sort of momentum on their side that, you know, what had happened in Wisconsin was local conservative talk radio hosts had really weighed in against Trump and in favor of Cruz. Wisconsin Republicans are quite conservative, but they're very much not Southerners. And they went for, for Cruz and it seemed like, well, OK, you know, there was this this counter mobilization that was happening. And what we saw, though, is that instead of Wisconsin being a turning point against Trump, it wound up being a turning point for him, because it's hard to know exactly, but I think the most plausible speculation is kind of swing Republicans saw clearly for the first time what stopping Trump would mean, that it was going to mean a contested convention. It was going to mean the relevance of all of these weird delegate poaching tactics that we'd been running articles about. And people did not want that. And then you've seen it even more after Indiana, right? You saw uh, people like Ari Fleischer, people like Rens Priebus. You've started to see more people from the Republican universe weighing in and saying, like, it's over, guys. Trump is the nominee. You know, people who clearly, clearly, if Ari Fleischer was enthusiastic about Donald Trump, he would have supported him a long time ago and could have gotten a lot of credit from Donald Trump for, for doing so. He's clearly not. But at the same time, he's a Republican. He wants the party to be strong. He wants the party to win. And that means he wants people to stop having this internal fight and start focusing on, on the next thing. That's clearly not how every Republican thinks, but it seems to be how enough of them think to, to clearly put Trump over the top. So I want to talk about the Republican Party. This is the part of it all that I am trying to think through and struggling with. And, and I'd be very curious how you both have updated your models of the party. And here's what I mean. I think that if I had said five years ago that the Republican Party harbored enough racial resentment, enough xenophobia, enough anti-intellectualism, enough anti-elitism, and enough latent authoritarianism to nominate someone like Donald Trump over the field of candidates they actually had this year, which was a strong field. It would have been correctly – well, maybe not correctly, but it, it would have been – given what we've seen happen, but it would have been denounced as a partisan slur. Like I would have sounded like a rabid partisan and I wouldn't have said it because I wouldn't have thought it was true. In 2012, the Republican Party nominated Mitt Romney, a moderate former governor of a blue state. In 2008, it nominated John McCain, the less conservative candidate from 2000. In 2000, it nominated George W. Bush, who had a great record of working with Democrats in, in Texas. And – what we have seen here is a Republican Party that in some really fundamental ways is confirming the worst suspicions that liberals had of it, that Republican elites had of it. When people said really terrible things about the Republican Party, things that felt unfair, 
they were talking about a Republican Party that would do this. It would nominate this man for this set of reasons. I have kept thinking in the last couple of weeks about a piece that the congressional scholars Thomas Mann and Norm Ornstein wrote. Maybe it's five years ago now. It was in the Washington Post. And I was I was at the Post when it happened. And, and Sarah, I think you were too. And it was in, if I remember correctly, the Outlook section. And they've been these very respected, bipartisan, sober-minded commentators in Washington for a very long time. Norm Ornstein works at the American Enterprise Institute, which is a conservative think tank. Thomas Mann was at Brookings. And they wrote this piece and they said, let's just say it. The Republican Party is the problem in American politics. And they said, look, the Democratic Party has its issues, but they called the Republican Party an, an outlier. They said, quote, it's become ideologically extreme, scornful of compromise, unmoved by conventional understanding of facts, evidence and science and dismissive of legitimacy of its political opposition. And, you know, I thought there was a lot to that op-ed when it was run. It was about sort of what was happening in Congress, the debt ceiling crises, et cetera. But it even felt strong to me then. And now it feels very precise, very on the nose. I mean, I even think about that last bit, dismissive of the legitimacy of its political opposition. And I, I think I remember that Donald Trump's big entry into Republican politics in the last couple of years was as a leader of the birther movement. I'm struggling with this of how to think about the fact that one of our two major parties is in this state, because I don't think that's a good thing. I think this is a dangerous thing. And I'm curious if if as I lay this out, you do think I am being too extreme on it. To me, what, what I think about is how this would have struck me at different points in time. Because where we are in 2016, I think would not have surprised me if I went back seven years ago. When I looked at the 2008 campaign where John McCain had sort of ditched all of John McCain's former public policy ideas in order to become the Republican nominee, to run a race as like a cranky old man, and then to put Sarah Palin on the ticket and the things I saw at the convention in St. Paul, the Bill Ayers stuff, that campaign struck me as as really nutty. The George W. Bush political trajectory struck me as the trajectory of a party that was yearning to completely abandon small government philosophy and embrace populist nationalism and like a cult of violence as its thing. And that the transition from Bush to McCain struck me as doubling down on that, that like the only thing that Bush and McCain had in common was a love of killing people. And then you saw John Boehner. Yeah, to, to just say, to, for people who maybe are not going to interpret that clearly, you're saying a love of for a, a Kill, killing interventionist. Right. That, they that they what, go to war. Right. That what, what Bush and McCain had disagreed about taxes, about gun control, about campaign finance, all kinds of stuff like that. But they both like they really liked killing foreigners. And it seemed to me that that was where. <laughs> really feel, I really feel. I'm just kidding. That, that feels unfair. They they believed that they believed American power could do these sure. things. Well. I, I, I'm describing how, yeah. how I felt. Though. Sure, what I enough. thought in 2009 was that the single common thread tying the Republican Party together was a desire to to kill foreigners. And so if you had told me they would nominate someone like Donald Trump in the future, I'd say, yes, I am a farsighted person who this is how I see things are going. And what really, really surprised me was 2012. That to me was an election where like my views of the Republican Party were debunked. And it turned out that the Republican Party was actually a lot more invested in business republicanism and small government and stuff like that and a, a certain idea of like Mormon rectitude and all kinds of things that that I had been dismissive of. And, and I thought to myself at that point, not just in 2012, but seeing some things that happened in 2011, some things that happened in 2013, that the Koch brothers and the Tea Party were reasserting a much more rigorous sort of small government thinking in the Republican Party. And I'd been misunderstanding, you know, the impact of 9-11 or or how John McCain had won. I had really been in the camp who was like, there's no way Romney's going to get it because conservative tribalists aren't going to pick a Mormon. Like nobody really cares about all this businessy type stuff. And that really, really, really surprised me. And now I feel wrong again. What happened in 2016 
it doesn't seem to me that I can construct a consistent narrative that explains all the different sort of moves in the presidential nomination process. Other than that, there's maybe just more randomness in it. And it makes me hesitant to sort of project forward what the larger significance of Republicans becoming the party of Trump means that they might pivot on a dime and, you know, once again, become the party of Mitt Romney or, or something in, in the future. To me, the lesson is just that I have, and I think we have collectively, less of a grasp on how presidential nomination process works than we thought we did. I think that's definitely true and would echo what Matt was saying, that there's a lack of a grasp that we thought we had, that we kind of knew how elites worked and how they interacted with the base. So the Things I think about when I think about the state of the Republican Party, you know, I kind of go back to the government shutdown in 2013 when we had, I think it was 10 days or so, the government shut down right around the launch of Obamacare um, led by Ted Cruz. And it was a moment that I don't think it worked electorally for, you know, Republicans. It tended to reflect poorly on them. But it, it didn't deter someone like Ted Cruz from becoming a frontrunner, if not a winner in the Republican primary. And I kind of look at that as one moment that ties to this larger, you know, the op-ed that Ezra was quoting from, this kind of disbelief in the legitimacy of the opposition, that limits we thought existed in politics, that you had actors who were willing to break through those and, you know, weren't willing to back down. It wasn't like after that the Tea Party said, you know, we did our shutdown, you know, it didn't quite work out how we hoped, Obamacare is still law. We're going to move on. You just had this series of confrontations on the Hill between Tea Party Republicans and between mainstream Republicans that just kept going, that made it impossible for former Speaker John Boehner to hold together his coalition. So it almost seems like a lot of what's happening with Trump is he's almost he's like reaping the rewards of the things that Cruz has set up, that Cruz had kind of really pushed this big divide. And I think he had hoped he's going to go into the primary as the guy who forced a government shutdown over Obamacare and who mobilized this other part of the Republican Party. And then you have Trump swoop in and Trump has no shame and Trump is willing to go even further and say things that Ted Cruz won't and like take the Cruz vision in the in the Republican Party and blow it up even further. So, you know, when I think about a narrative, that's the one that I that I see. But I also think it's obviously one constructed in hindsight and one that none of us and I don't think any journalist saw coming as we went into this election cycle a year ago. Let's take a quick break and, and, and come back to talk about that more. This week's episode of The Weeds is sponsored by Club W. We've all been there, or certainly I have, you know, come home after a long, exhausting day at work and you'd like to sit down, sip a glass of wine, but, you know, didn't plan ahead, don't have a bottle in your house and getting up, going to the store, it's it's too much of a hassle. So that's why Club W is great. You can just relax, never need to worry about having no wine in your house. It's a new wine club and it sends bottles directly to your door, saving you trips to the grocery store. And not only do they send you wine, they send you wine you're going to love to drink. They've got an easy six-question quiz that figures out your palate so every bottle you receive is perfectly tasty tailored to your tastes. Club W works directly with vineyards to cut out the middleman, which saves you money. And they're even offering a no-risk guarantee that you'll love what they send you. So right now, Club W is offering listeners $20 off your first order when you go to clubw.com slash weeds. And it gets even better. No one wants to pay for shipping, so Club W will actually pay for your shipping on orders of four bottles or more. So take something off your to-do list. Just go to clubw.com slash weeds to get $20 off of your first order now. That's clubw.com slash weeds. It's worth noting something else happened in Indiana, and I think it speaks – both of you have talked a little bit about the Tea Party here. And – and I, I think this speaks to a really good question about whether or not Donald Trump is an aberration or a continuation of Tea Party trends. So in, in Indiana, the other voting that was happening was in the Republican Senate primary. And the Republican Senate primary pitted a congressman named Marlon Stutzman, who is a member of the House Freedom Caucus, was endorsed by the Club for Growth, was a very, very, very conservative player in, in Congress, one of the people who is the reason that John Boehner ended up being driven out of the speakership against another congressman named Todd Young, who's a you know more establishment friendly pick, clearly had the implicit support of the National Republican Senate Committee, is a more just business friendly Republican in the mold of maybe I don't want to say quite in the mold of Mitt Romney, but in you know in the mold of 
the John Boehner wing of the Republican Party as opposed to the people who kicked John Boehner out of the wing of the Republican Party. And Todd Young won. He won reasonably easily. And this happened on the same night that John Kasich got nothing, basically, and that Indiana Republican voters chose Donald Trump by a, by a pretty overwhelming margin. And one thing that I think is very hard to know at the moment is whether Donald Trump is his own unique phenomenon and that phenomenon will last precisely as long as Donald Trump's time in national politics lasts or if we are seeing broader changes in the Republican Party. You know, on the one hand, Trump looks in some ways like a continuation of Tea Party trends, certainly in terms of anti-establishment confrontation, certainly in terms of beliefs about what is and isn't possible in American politics. In another way, he is not the principled conservative that the Tea Party tended to favor, as Matt says. And then simultaneously, you are not seeing trends in other Republican elections that fit either the rise of the Tea Party or the rise of a separate kind of anti-establishment Trumpism story. And so are we just looking at something that is a phenomenon limited to one man? Or are we looking at something really that is different? I mean, I think what's difficult about Trump is that if you think about the phenomenon separately from the man, I mean, if you try to think about Trump in terms of positions on the issues, so to speak, I think you would mostly be saying that Trump represents a move to the left relative to where Republicans had been. I mean, Trump is a very hardline immigration restrictionist, but that had sort of become the consensus Republican Party position pre-Trump. Trump is sort of softer on the question of entitlements than other Republicans. Trump has a kind of ludicrous tax cutting plan, but all Republicans run on ludicrous tax cutting plans. Trump talks about the pain free trade agreements have done to manufacturing communities in the United States, things like that, right? I mean, if you if you kind of sketched it out in the abstract on paper, you would say, okay, this is a plausible vision for how Republicans can reposition themselves, move to the center in some ways and, and win elections. You would say that Marco Rubio's idea of embracing immigration reform and, and staying quite conservative on, on almost everything else was also a plausible vision of moving to the center. But you would say that this Trumpist alternative also kind of makes sense in that same frame and that there may be targeting different states, that the Trumpist take is a better fit for the Midwest and the, and the Rubio take is, is a better take for the Southwest. But then if you understand Trump that way, I think you would be completely missing the point of Donald Trump and of the whole Donald Trump phenomenon, you know, which is that Donald Trump came to prominence talking about how Barack Obama is a fake American, that Donald Trump doesn't just talk about how, well, we can't do immigration reform and we need to tighten up enforcement of immigration laws. He talks about building giant walls, building a deportation force. You know, he, he's really trying to make it clear that other politicians may support a conservative policy stance on immigration. But Donald Trump really, on a gut level, like hates immigrants. That's what he's trying to convey with all this stuff about rapists and with things he says that I think when Donald Trump says we're going to build a wall and we're going to make Mexico pay and the crowd cheers for him, I don't think that's like people in the audience are dupes who don't understand practical problems with that idea. They're cheering for the sentiment, which is that Trump is going to be really, really, really committed to this idea. Trump is going to put Americans first. Trump doesn't care what Mexico thinks, what Mexicans think, so stuff like that. And that's very personal, right? I mean, it reflects something bigger than Trump because lots of people like it, but it's a persona that he's created that I think it's difficult for other people to emulate, particularly because if you're running for the House, you're not going to get on CNN constantly to talk about things like that. And you, you really do need money and traditional things that Trump has, has not been able to put together. So – Trump seems a little like a one-off to me, not – even though Trump clearly does reflect some broader trends, there's not a Trump model that it's really clear to me how you would emulate in a down-ballot kind of race, right? Unless you happen to have Trump's combination of 
TV persona and access to mass media, which is difficult for me to imagine further down ballot. Yeah. So, I mean, one way it does seem like you could emulate it, you would just have to like lose all level of shame. Like you would have to be willing just to go out there with some opinions that generally political candidates have shied away from. And you could look at Trump as kind of the model for that. Say, you know, it worked for him. I can go that far and, you know, I can be rewarded. And, you know, I'm trying to think through, maybe you guys have thoughts on this. Like, what is different? And maybe it's his reality TV persona. Maybe it's the fact he's been known for 30 years. But what is different about the way that the media reacts to things that Trump says versus if, you know, another politician was saying them? I think we cover some somewhat nutty things that politicians say. Like, I remember on my beat, there was, who was it? There was an Indiana Senate candidate who was talking about how the woman's body, like, just as a way of un- ending unintended pregnancy. And everyone said that Missouri. was nuts. Hmm? Missouri. Missouri. Aiken, sorry, but, wrong one. I'm like stuck Missouri? in Indiana. Yeah, it is Missouri. Okay. So Ted Aiken like says this like nutty thing and he gets a lot of blowback and like, you know, it, it didn't feel like a good moment for Aiken. And he really got taken to task for saying this like completely nutty thing about reproductive health. But I don't know. Is there, do you guys see a model for where, you know, other down ballot candidates could like emulate the shamelessness of Trump? Or is there split? What's different? Well, it's like, imagine if Aiken had chosen to treat that as an opportunity. Todd Aiken did not react to that by saying, let me do live interviews with every cable news channel in America, where I will obviously come on and get some questions about why I think women's bodies have a way of shutting down pregnancy. And then while I'm on that show, I will just give my spiel. I mean, I think it's easy to understand why he didn't react that way. Normally, politicians who commit gaffes don't run around and take every opportunity to have those things. But if they did, would it end up like Trump or would it end up differently? Well, I mean, the question is, why would being on national TV help you win a Senate election in Missouri? But let me let me take this slightly from the other direction, because I've actually changed my view on this in the last two weeks. I used to believe that Trumpism would persist after Trump, that what you would get would be candidates who would figure out his cocktail of policies, this sort of mixture of economic populism with nationalism, with social traditionalism, and drive it forward in a more elegant, establishment-friendly way. And then I changed my mind on this. And I was writing, it actually came, I was writing a piece in response to something Ross Douth that wrote, and that caused me to think about this a little bit more carefully. And when I look at what has permitted Trump to offer the deviations he has, I actually increasingly believe it is inextricably wound up in his habit of saying offensive things, his outrageousness, his personal fortune and his media celebrity. Because normally what would happen, and and I think Todd Aiken is actually not a bad example here for, for this discussion. What you would normally have happened is that Women's bodies may not have a way of shutting that whole thing down when it's an unintended pregnancy, but political parties actually do have a way of shutting that whole thing down when it's an unintended candidate. You see what I did there? I see it. And what would normally happen is that the political party's machinery would end up becoming pretty important. So one thing that would happen is that the media to some degree takes cues in terms of who to cover from party elites. It looks to party elites a little bit to say, hey, is this person a serious candidate? Are they likely to win? Are they going to get your support? Because there are always more candidates than we can cover. Party elites give a lot of signals about fundraising. So oftentimes, whether or not a candidate can raise money ends up being pretty important. It ends up depending on whether or not they have not just party support, it can be movement support, but it's got to be some kind of support from some institutions within the, the broader coalition. And what Trump was able to do And what he figured out as a loophole was that he was able to turn his personal celebrity, his complete and total lack of shame, his understanding of media dynamics into a way to subvert or end run the party process so that every time people began taking attention away from him, he would say something yet more outrageous and get the media glare back on his own campaign. And that worked because he had the personal celebrity to do it. He had the sort of personal constitution to do it and that he understood this loophole, which most people, even if they can grok conceptually, do not have the qualities to take advantage of, which is 
for Trump, he's really believed that it doesn't matter whether your publicity is negative or positive. It only matters whether it is more than the other candidates. And so I think that if you imagined a version of Trump that did not have those qualities, that was not outrageous, that did not want to offend people, that did want to play nicer with the party establishment, but had Trump's policy positions, that that Trump would get shut down. That what you would have there is a worst of both worlds candidate where the candidate, she's heterodox in ways that rob her of party support, but she's establishment oriented in ways that make her uninteresting to the media. And so there's just no space for her. And I think it's really Trump's personal qualities that have allowed him to create an alternative kind of campaign structure that is based on his own ability to command media attention. So I've become increasingly convinced that there isn't Trumpism after Trump just because most candidates cannot do what he did, that in order to evade the party the way he has, you have to be willing to mount a kind of campaign that is based on offensiveness, based on saying crazy things. And that campaign in general, it just doesn't work. And I think it's not going to work for Trump either. I think the traits that have been adaptive for him in the primary are going to prove maladaptive in the general. And we're really looking at a situation where Hillary Clinton, it does look like it'll be Hillary Clinton on the Democratic side, has the possibility of a pretty significant even landslide victory. Yeah, let's take a commercial break and then talk a little more about the media. The Weeds is brought to you by Goldman Sachs. For answers to the world's most pressing economic questions from the latest in emerging markets to finding the next big computing platform, tune into Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, the firm's podcast. Each episode features in-depth discussions with some of the firm's leading experts on the markets, evolving industries, and the global economy. Subscribe to Exchanges at Goldman Sachs on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, or listen at gs.com slash podcast. One thing I want to say about Trump and, quote unquote, the media is that I do think it's worth always complicating. The media is a a vast landscape these days. The way in which I I think this narrative that Trump has gotten, quote unquote, media attention is, is most true is that Trump has dominated cable news. When I go to the gym and they have all three cable channels on all the time because it's DC, there's like constantly Trump. You know, they're either teasing their next Trump segment, Trump is phoning in, stuff like that. And and I think that's where what Ezra was talking about is really present and really true. And there's a sort of fundamental problem for trying to imitate that. The other thing, though, that has been interesting about Trump is talk radio. Conservative talk radio has been an important force in American politics for a long time now. And part of what's made it important is that it's ideological, but it's also quite popular, right? It's a it's a commercial medium in which ratings matter and it's big time in a way that like small ideological magazines aren't. But we've also always thought of, I think most people who aren't in the universe of conservative politics have thought of conservative talk radio as driven by ideology to a meaningful extent and as a mechanism through which heterodoxy can get sort of purged from the party. And what you saw with Trump was that that was not as true as we had believed it to be, that positive coverage of Trump seem to be good for business for a significant segment of commercial conservative media. Sean Hannity, both on television and on radio, has been very, very kind to Donald Trump in a way that Sean Hannity has not historically been kind to people who commit ideological deviations. Rush Limbaugh was a was a Trump booster for a long time, turned a little less Trump enthusiastic near the end, but remained studiedly neutral. And we saw that made a big difference on the ground, that what I've heard from conservatives who, who I know in, in Texas and in Wisconsin is that a big reason they think that Trump did so poorly in those states is that more locally based conservative radio hosts in in those places were very organized against Trump. So I don't know that that creates a template that other people will emulate exactly, but it's sort of a a larger problem or just issue as, as the media landscape fissures and people look to whether it's radio hosts or websites, people look to ideological media outlets as sort of party actors, as guides to politics. But those actors are also 
acting in their business interests, right? That the the website Breitbart seems to have done really well for itself by positioning itself as the pro-Trump conservative media. While most and it did this at, at great personal cost, ultimately. <laughs> Right, right, right. Like, like they, they literally had a, a, a reporter assaulted by Trump's campaign manager and they decided to believe Trump's campaign manager about what happened and had a huge staff result and just stuck with it and have just really proven their loyalty. Sorry, I didn't mean to. Draw no, no, no. I, I, that's right. Moment. Right. So, so I think if you see certain media outlets pivot to a pro Trump viewpoint, then people who listen to those shows or, or watch those outlets are going to be marinating in a different take on what conservatism is about. And th- that's where I see Trumpism possibly gaining some some kind of momentum, that you're seeing the creation on Hannity, on Breitbart, of like a new conventional wisdom about what's really important to conservative politics, in which like the idea of being not politically correct is like really, really, really elevated. And the question of trade policy is just not that important, which you can understand. I mean, if I was thinking about Vox.com content and someone was like, we got to do like a really hot take about trade policy and like how important like nailing the ideologically correct details of trade policy is, I'd be like, nah, people aren't really going to care. You know, one thing I'd add to that, you were saying, you know, it's good for business and it's good, you know, for views to take your side like Sean Hannity has with Trump. But I think there's something even deeper than that, like a kind of tribal wanting to fit in thing that's going on that can also lead to deciding to align one way or another. There was a story that This American Life did recently, another excellent podcast about, it was a broadcaster, I believe he was in South Carolina, Tony Beam, who had the show where he like generally felt like he agreed with his with his viewers, where they hated Obamacare, he hated Obamacare, they generally didn't like Obama, and he didn't like Obama either. And then this weird vision comes up where Trump comes along and he thinks, well, that guy, he's on a Christian radio show, and he thinks, well, that guy isn't a Christian. Clearly, he's not the person that I support and clearly not my viewers, and was just very – it was really interesting to hear him – Talk not in a financial sense, well, this is bad for my radio show because, you know, my ratings will get bad because my readers disagree with me. But just, you know, how difficult it was to distance from the group that he felt a part of, from this group that, you know, he generally agreed with to say, no, actually, you know, I'm different from you in some really significant way. And it almost circles back to the discussion we were having earlier where you see Trump taking a larger and larger share of primary votes, where at some point, you know, and I think Ezra's done a lot on this about political tribes and how we kind of align with them. At some point, I think you start feeling out of line with your tribe and the kind of boundary of the, of the tribe start to redefine. And I'm curious, you know, I think I, a little bit more than you, Ezra, see possibly the tribe of what it means to be Republican and what it means to be part of this party or this group that supports Trump might shift the boundaries in ways that could outlast Trump. I think there's something to that. I mean, I, I totally agree that, that that one way Trumpism can entrench itself and one way it can become something more than him is that he will slightly change the tribal signals within the party, and within the movement. I mean, and, and to speak about this in maybe a different way, you can look at Obama. One thing that has happened after Barack Obama won the Democratic nomination and then the presidency is that the Democratic Party has developed a much more self-conscious idea of itself as the home of multiculturalism in American politics. And so if you look and you look at polling around racially tinged controversies, you would see in the 90s when when Clinton was in, in office, there was actually not a very significant partisan split on the questions like the O.J. Simpson trial, for instance. Republicans and Democrats had very similar views on that. Or the White Bernard ones, Getz shootings. Right. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I apologize. Or the Bernard Getz shootings in New York. Now you see tremendously different Republican-Democrat polling on this stuff. Uh, if you look at sort of opinions on, Z- on the Zimmerman trial or even on whether 12 years a slave should win an Oscar, um, you saw Democrats overwhelmingly thought it should and Republicans overwhelmingly thought it shouldn't. And so there have been signals about diversity and multiculturalism that have just become part of how you show in, in this era that you're a Democrat. And and I think you're right to say that some of that may end up attaching itself to Trump too. But that's also, I think, an interesting segue to to something 
else that will be important here, which is that Trump will not run in a vacuum. He's going to run against Hillary Clinton. And this is going to be, in, in some ways, I think, a very strange election. Uh, somebody observed to me the other day that Hillary Clinton begins the election with approval ratings far below what Barack Obama had in 2008. So at about this point in the 08 election, Obama's approval ratings were 55 percent and Hillary Clinton's are about 41, 42 percent right now. So that is a huge gap. And it shows that Hillary Clinton is a polarizing and, and unpopular figure in American life. She's just not nearly as polarizing and unpopular as, as Donald Trump. And so whereas Barack Obama was always pretty close to his Republican opponent, Clinton routinely leads Trump by about 10 points in polls. And there is reason to believe, given how well-known both figures are, that that or something near to that could actually prove the outcome. So to state it simply, like Hillary Clinton starts the election with much lower favorability than Obama had but has the possibility of a much higher vote share than Obama ever did because Trump could just preside over a Goldwater-style landslide defeat in a way that John McCain was never going to or Mitt Romney was never going to. And I think that raises a, a couple of interesting questions. One is about what possibilities that unlocks for her in office. But another, to your point, Sarah, is about how does Hillary, if she becomes this kind of super successful Democratic candidate, how does she and how does running against Trump and defining the party against Trump also change things? I mean, I think one thing that I expect to happen is Donald Trump has a really serious problem with misogyny, like a very serious problem with misogyny. I think he's usually at his worst attacking female candidates like Hillary, but also earlier in the campaign like Carly Fiorina, because it becomes almost immediately misogynistic. Trump attacking Carly Fiorina's face and how you wouldn't want to look at that every day and him attacking Hillary Clinton for going to the bathroom and how that's disgusting. And then you have, you know, a, a Democratic Party that's going to nominate the you know, first uh, female nominee of a major party and, you know, very likely have the first female president in American history. And I think something that's going to happen around that is a lot of tribal signals around gender and sexism and misogyny, things that I think are, are broadly going to be positive for what's going to get called out in this campaign, but is also going to be very ugly along the way. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot going on there. But I, I do think one thing I think it's worth dwelling on a little is is the way these these signals work, right? That I think if you think about specific sort of groups in, in the population and their affiliation with parties is always shifting for one reason or another. And, you know, an element of the Republican Party that was prominent at an earlier point in, in this race is Cuban-Americans, right, who have been affiliated with the Republican Party for generations due to originally issues related to anti-communism and to Fidel Castro. Those issues like Cold War issues faded a, a long time ago. The Obama administration did this diplomatic opening to Cuba quite recently. It does not appear that Donald Trump or anyone else is going to campaign on reversing that and like going back to Bay of Pigs style kind of revolts. At the same time, you have Racial issues becoming more salient in American politics. The Republican Party, particularly under Trump, portraying itself as a vehicle for maintaining, I don't quite want to say white supremacy is a, a weaker term than that, but just resisting the tide of multiculturalism in the United States. And I think because of that, you're going to see among younger Cuban Americans living in Florida, living in New Jersey, are going to look around at a very different electoral landscape if it's Trump versus Hillary than it would have been if it's Rubio versus Hillary in a way that kind of extends forward into the future. You sit around and you're like, why was my uncle a Republican? And you look into it and like, he will have had his reasons, but like, they're not reasons that are relevant to contemporary politics at all. And if you have a politics where it's like, is multiculturalism good or bad is a really big issue, which I think was not a question in the 1984 general election, even though most racial minorities voted for Democrats, racial minority groups like Cubans who had reasons to vote Republican did. But I think that looks like it's really changing. And I do think that has second order consequences for what other kinds of ideologies people espouse. If as America becomes less white, Republicans are going to try to win elections based on white votes. They need to get a very, very large share of the white vote. And that means that you need to be, I think, somewhat more flexible 
on certain kinds of issues and at least admit that different candidates running in different places may have to have different takes on some of these policy questions because it's just too – it's sort of too large and, and diverse a, a group of people. So as we polarize around one kind of axis of issues, we might depolarize uh, around uh, another axis. And, and if you think about mid-century American politics, which was less ideologically polarized, that's because it had a strong racial dimension in terms of political debate. So to the extent that we introduce this kind of new element into the political system, it should have an impact, it seems to me, on on where we stand on, on other kinds of issues. I think we should take a quick break from our sponsor before Sarah responds to that incisive point. This week's episode of The Weeds is sponsored by Texture. Texture is, is this great app. It's kind of like Netflix, but but for reading. You know, So instead of binge watching, you, you get to binge read, specifically binge read magazines. When it comes to magazines, you, know, you tend to know what you like. And with Texture, you can get all the magazines you might want in one simple, super convenient place, plus interactive features, videos, and recommendations for, for more things to read. The Texture app lets you tap into the world's most popular magazines anytime, anywhere, using your smartphone or tablet. You can breeze through hundreds of your favorite magazines, including back issues, and pick the articles that interest you most. Texture's made it really easy to find articles you care about. I don't just get to read, like, New York and Bon Appetit, but the Texture editorial team recommends content for me every day, plus I can dive deep into personalized collections. So sign up for Texture right now and gain insider access to all the content from the world's best publications. The best part? Texture's offering our listeners a free trial right now when you go to texture.com slash weeds. You'll gain immediate entry to all the top magazines, including back issues and a bonus video content. So try Texture right now for free when you go to texture.com slash weeds, texture.com slash weeds. So I'm sorry, Ezra, kept, we kept you waiting. I don't actually respond to an entirely new <laughs> That's question even better. So that, that makes I want to talk to you really both good. about. So that was a terrible lie that kept you all listening. But he, so here's the thing I've been thinking about in the wake of Indiana is, you know, we get through this election cycle and it seems like Hillary will likely win or maybe Trump wins. But what happens next to like the thing that is the Republican Party? Because it seems like now, and this is not an especially unique insight, that you have some like very warring factions within it. You have a lot of voters who Trump has really appealed to. And this kind of strain of former writer for Vox, Amanda Taub, has really looked at this kind of authoritarian instinct that seems to really show up in Trump voters. And they are a large presence in the United States, I think larger than a lot of us had estimated. And then you have kind of what we tend to think of as the more traditional conservative wing, you know, who are looking for small government, who have been behind the never Trump movement or whatever of it, you know, existed. Do they keep being in the same place and work out their differences? Or, you know, do we end up, you know, seeing some kind of split? What does that look like? And, you know, maybe we end up in a world where we have a President Trump and, you know, he kind of just moderates on his policies and he looks like a Republican in policy while saying outlandish things. You, I'm curious how you both think about this idea of, you know, what happens to these two factions that seem to be in the same party, but also have quite different views about what they yeah, want to I see from that, that party. Yeah, I think there is a really fascinating dynamic here. So one thing is, I don't believe that even as much as there's an obvious schism in the party between those who are Republicans for reasons of a kind of resentful nationalism and those who are Republican for reasons of principled conservatism, I don't believe it's going to lead to a, a significant never Trump vote. It might depress Republican turnout a bit, but ultimately Hillary Clinton is a liberal and Republicans are typically not liberals, and I think that's going to be enough. I, I I will say just like as an aside, the thing that the Clinton campaign is going to be trying to do is run a race where they can get some of these independents and, and moderate Republicans. And that means running a not very liberal campaign. It means running a campaign based on Donald Trump's fundamental fitness for office, which is what they're thinking about. And I'll, I'll be very curious to see if they can pull that off. But putting that aside... After this election, whoever wins it, there's going to be some kind of fight in the Republican Party, although I'm not sure anybody knows what mechanisms that fight will run through between is this a conservative party or is it just fundamentally a nationalistic party? Is this a party that needs to have a no new taxes pledge or is it a party that can abandon that so long as it's going to spend those taxes on older rural white Americans? And I think to your point, Sarah, the, the, the part of this that I keep running a ground on when I try to think it through in my head is 
that I am not sure what the venue for this battle is. Because it's not going to completely wait until the next election. And it's not clear to me that the congressional elections are playing by similar dynamics. And it's not clear that Trumpism has at this moment any kind of real purchase in Congress. So how does this fight happen? You're going to have this moment after the election when all of these conservatives who have just been destroyed, like their candidates have been destroyed, their beliefs have been trod over. If you were a neoconservative, you've been insulted continuously by Donald Trump, even though he supported the Iraq war, he he claims now to have not and, and laughs at a project that you considered very important that you were very invested in. If you are an economic conservative, he has been heterodox on basically everything you believe in. And all of a sudden, the, the election is going to end at some – my assumption is Trump is probably going to lose. And these people are going to look around and ask themselves a the question of how do I take back this party? But there isn't going to be anybody to fight. <laughs> and so I am really curious for what that campaign looks like, what that strategy looks like. Maybe, Matt, you have a better thought on this than I do. The one thing I do want to say here is that I feel like there has been a certain amount of forgetting of what the George W. Bush administration was like and what it stood for when people talk about sea change and orthodoxy and, and Trump and, and things like that. Now, George W. Bush on economic matters, he really cut taxes. He cut taxes a lot. Uh, but Trump is also a tax cutter. George W. Bush expanded Medicare substantially with a very expensive new program. George W. Bush increased domestic spending, particularly on K-12 education. George W. Bush did not push any significant new trade deals. He started a trade war with China over steel tariffs. He scuttled the Doha round of WTO negotiations by signing a, a farm bill that greatly increased protection for, for U.S. agricultural type stuff. And he also had some kind of trade war related to bananas that I don't fully understand the, the context of and, and another one with Canada related to lumber. And He's a very different politician from Donald Trump. I don't want to say that like Donald Trump and George W. Bush are two peas in a pod since obviously Donald Trump actually has a deep loathing for the Bush family. But the idea of a Republican politics that cuts taxes a lot and sort of does regulatory policy that is broadly pro-business without acting like it has spent a lot of time marinating in Cato Institute policy briefs is like not a new idea. That's what the last Republican president did. That's what he acted like. And while Trump and neoconservatives have been in a ton of tension with his sort of weird lies about Iraq and his interesting bush bashing on 9-11, on I think if you look at the – not at like what was in weekly standard articles or like what was Fred Kagan saying at the Institute for the Study of War. But if you look at the politicking around the Iraq war and, and the war on terror, that Bush's foreign policy politics were about nationalism, right? Like his big line in 2004 was, I'll never ask a permission slip to do what's right to defend the United States of America. You know, stuff like that. It was, it was chest-thumping nationalism was a, a key theme there. And that is also what Donald Trump is doing as his key theme. Now, obviously, there's a huge policy difference between Bush's foreign policy and what we can make out of, out of Trump's. But I think that what sort of a politics is it? A politics that blends nationalism with tax cutting and is pretty relaxed about spending details is broadly similar. And it sort of fits the macroeconomic circumstances in which interest rates are low and you can get away with that kind of policy incoherence. And to me, the big difference that people underrate and don't talk about is the total collapse of the gay marriage issue in American politics. That was a big winner for mid-aughts Republicans. And now 10 years later, it's vanished off the radar screen. And you see secondary consequences of that, it seems to me. Something needs to fill that gap in the George W. Bushian coalition, right? Something needs to play that role as like an emotional motivator that says that the other party is culturally alien and weird and you should vote for us even if you're not 
super jazzed about our economic policy platform. And that's what your Jebs and your Marcos and your Kasichs and all these other people, they didn't have an answer to that. They weren't like, well, what's going what's gonna to be that leg of the stool? And Trump has sort of proposed a, a new leg in terms of a kind of racial identity politics. And it doesn't seem like nearly as good a leg as gay marriage was, but you need something to sort of fill that gap. And that's, I think, what has been missing from mainstream Republicans. One thing will be interesting to watch over the next six months is like how that leg fits in going forward, like what that looks like, like how prominent it is. Because I think that is, like you said, something that's really set him apart from a lot of his competitors, is kind of that racial politics leg that others, you know, just haven't wanted to touch, definitely haven't gone nearly as far with. One thing is I'll be interested to watch in a Trump nomination, you know, maybe a Trump presidency if we end up in that world, is like how his policy develops and like how that affects mainstream Republican thinking about Trump. One thing when you look at his domestic policy in particular, if you were just to look at his policy proposals on paper, totally divorced from um, the candidate and his name. Some of it looks like pretty boilerplate Republican. The one I know best, unsurprisingly, is this healthcare proposal, which really looks like something Paul Ryan could have written. It looks like something that's been coming out of the Republican House for years now as the Obamacare replacement, and it doesn't do much different. And I am interested and curious to see like whether that ends up being the case with other policy proposals and, you know, perhaps maybe more importantly, how the party works that in. These are just anecdotes, but, you know, things I've heard from Trump supporters, you know, whether it's a cab driver or just people I've run into, you sometimes see people shrugging off the parts of Trump that they don't like, saying, oh, well, you know, he just says that. And, you know, just kind of setting that aside so that they're able to kind of think through their support. And I don't know if that gets stronger over a campaign cycle. If, you know, you see a candidate who says some things that, you know, might seem wacky to you, might seem really appealing to other people, but on paper, it seems like a kind of vanilla Republican. And you kind of say, you know, well, it's not Hillary Clinton. He has some pretty orthodox Republican views on paper. And like, I can be okay with that, you know, either in a candidate or, you know, in a bigger term in an entire party saying, you know, well, there are these things I don't like, but at the end of the day, some of the, you know, a lot of the policy proposals end up being kind of, you know, what we've been used to. So we, we just kind of muddle along with both of those. one dimension of this though, which is important is, and is a little bit orthogonal to the question of policy. Cause I think both what, what you said, Sarah, and what you said, Matt, makes sense. And, and, and particularly the resonances between, Elements of Trumpism and elements of, of Bushism are, are very real. What is fundamentally so different about them, though, is their relationship to Republican Party institutions, relationship to the Republican Party establishment and, and the mood that they speak to in the electorate. And this is something that I think is – and it's one reason I don't really understand how the coming fight will play out. But this is, I think, the thing that is – in a way, going to be the subject of the fight, which is who has power in the Republican Party? Who is listened to? What kinds of signals are considered important within the Republican Party? Fundamentally, what sort of quote unquote principled conservatives need to do here is restore an equilibrium, which it seemed like they had just a couple of years ago. They got Paul Ryan into the speakership. The Tea Party knocked out all kinds of more moderate Republicans in, in, in primary challenges. But they need to rediscover an equilibrium where the signal this per candidate is not a conservative, is considered a really negative signal. And one thing that George W. Bush had was he really benefited from signals in the Republican Party that he was one of them. And one reason he was actually able to sell in my retelling and my understanding of the Bush presidency, one reason he was often able to sell certain deviations like Medicare Part D was that that sense of belonging and, and connection was so strong. So that for a period of time, it would, it would, it would go much too far to say conservatism became what Bush said it was, but republicanism certainly became what Bush said it was, even when that wasn't precisely conservative. And that happened because Bush was so woven in with the power centers of the Republican party. And in that way, Trump is the opposite. Trump is, opposed by those power centers and feeds off of their hatred, feeds off of their opposition, feeds off of this clear and repeated demonstration that he is not a member of the establishment. And so I think that one of the really important questions here, 
as he begins to make his mark on the party is one thing that can happen is those institutions embrace him. And this ends up being a sort of issue of co-option. But another thing that can happen is that he does the exact opposite of what Bush did. And his heterodoxies work not because he's able to redefine them at republicanism, but because he actually defines himself in opposition to republicanism, that he shows he's not one of those conservatives, not one of those republicans. And that to me is what I am interested to see how it plays out, because that is a really fundamental threat to all these people who formerly held power in the Republican Party. If you have to watch a candidate emerge who listens to you, but maybe ultimately goes in a somewhat different direction, but you still have a voice, that is often much easier than a candidate who maybe even agrees with you, but is completely dismissive of you. Trump has set off and is going to set off a tremendous power struggle and reevaluation of where power exists within the conservative movement and within the Republican Party. And and I just think that's going to be a very interesting – calling it a battle may, may be too strong of a word, but a, a dynamic to watch play out. All right. Well, fortunately, there's like a million <laughs> weeks left. Good for the content industry. Campaign, so we will have plenty more time to, to look at look at different aspects of this. So thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Weeds. Thanks to our sponsors, our uh, producer, AC Valdez. And uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs>